Hello, and welcome to the ninth webinar in the 2017 MJHS NHPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. Our topic today will be palliative care in the post-stroke patient. I am particularly excited to discuss this topic with you today because this is very much an emerging area within the greater field of palliative care. And over the past few years, there has really been growing recognition within both the palliative care and the stroke communities about the importance of palliative care for this particular population. Now, this is a, a broad topic, and it can be approached from many angles. But for the purposes of this webinar, we're really going to focus on three important topics regarding post-stroke palliative care. And those will be identifying and managing physical symptoms, psychiatric and behavioral changes, as well as developing strategies for caregiver support. But first, I'll give you a little bit of background. So as we know, stroke is very common. Every year in this country, just under 800,000 people experience a stroke. And on average, this breaks down to essentially someone in this country having a stroke every 40 seconds and someone dying from a stroke approximately every four minutes. Stroke is now the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. It's also important to recognize that approximately 59% of stroke deaths occur outside of an acute hospital. So this gives us an overall sense of where the palliative care needs may lie. Stroke comes in two general types. The majority of strokes are ischemic stroke, which can either be from thrombosis of small vessels within the brain or embolic strokes resulting from a blood clot, thus breaking off or clotting a large vessel within the brain. A smaller percentage, around 13% of strokes, are hemorrhagic strokes, and these are typically either, for example, intracranial hemorrhages or subarachnoid hemorrhages. Stroke has a number of impacts. It is, first and foremost, the leading cause of significant disability in adults. And from those that don't die in the immediate period from their stroke, among stroke survivors, the majority are left with some degree of either physical and or neuropsychiatric disability. 15 to 30% of stroke survivors do remain permanently disabled, and approximately 25, excuse me, 20% do require institutional care three months post-stroke. What's notable about stroke within the context of palliative care are the multiple impacts that it has. Now, stroke can result in a unique combination of physical, neuropsychiatric, and psychosocial changes, which can have a profound impact on both the patient, family, and other caregivers. What's also notable about stroke is that the change that occurs is frequently very sudden and in many cases completely unexpected. Now this is different than in other conditions we typically manage in palliative care, like cancer or heart disease, whereas in these situations, while the diagnosis may be a shock, because there is more of a gradual decline or recurrent episodes, the patient and family have more of an opportunity to adapt and adjust to the changes, whereas in stroke, because it is so sudden and often so unexpected, there is a lack of time and often an lack of an opportunity to repair, to prepare for this major change. And these all end up having a very significant impact on the life of both the patients and families. Because of these changes, the field of palliative care is really well suited 
to care for stroke patients from an interdisciplinary perspective. It's important to note that the needs of stroke patients can occur immediately after a large stroke, but then patients continue to have needs if they survive in the weeks, the months, or even years after the stroke has occurred. It's also important to consider that the need exists regardless of goals of care. While certainly for a large acute stroke that is, appears to be terminal, there are often significant end-of-life needs, but for patients for whom the focus is either rehab and recovery, they often have significant palliative care needs as well. It's also important to consider the fact that stroke can be certainly the primary indication for the palliative care consult, but because stroke is so common, stroke often ends up being a significant comorbidity in patients being seen in a palliative care setting for other diagnoses. So for example, a patient may have cancer or COPD, and that may be the primary referral cause for their palliative care involvement. But if they have had a stroke, they may have symptoms or psychosocial issues related to that stroke, which overall affect their medical condition and their overall sense of well-being. And these always have to be considered in the context of other serious illnesses as well. Interestingly, in 2016, the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association, released an official policy statement on palliative care in the post-stroke patient. And in this station, uh, statement, it was directly noted, and I quote, that palliative care should be integrated into the care of all patients with advanced cardiovascular disease and stroke early in the disease trajectory. The statement goes on to emphasize the collaboration between palliative care and primary treatment teams and also describes palliative care as, quote unquote, an essential health benefit, which can improve patient and caregiver understanding, treatment of symptoms, shared decision-making, communication, patient and caregiver outcomes, as well as preparation for end-of-life and bereavement support. So with this growing interest in palliative care among the stroke and neurologic communities, everyone that works in the field of specialist level of palliative care is going to have to be very well-versed into the management of this population and their specific needs. Now, palliative care consults or palliative care involvement can occur, if I may generalize, in two broad settings post-stroke. The first is in an acute stroke, and the second is more chronic. Now, the major needs, when we're talking about an acute stroke, we are often dealing in a hospital setting with a large catastrophic event, either a very large ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke. In many cases, the patient may be at end of life or close to end of life. They may be in a comatose or a profoundly debilitated state. And the typical issues which are at the forefront in types of these acute strokes are number one, goals of care. And in some cases, the goals of care may be quite an urgent need. Typically, if the patient has lost their airway, there is often a question of initiating mechanical ventilation. If the patient has been intubated, there is often a significant question of whether the patient should undergo a palliative extubation or undergo tracheostomy and long-term mechanical ventilation. And of course, there are significant discussions to be had regarding the initiation of artificial nutrition and hydration. Common symptoms that occur along with a large stroke in acute setting are changes in the respiratory status, a dyspnea, 
labored breathing. There is often signs of pain involved. Patients who have had either an ischemic or a large hemorrhagic stroke are at very high risk for difficulty managing oral pharyngeal secretion, so there is a need to control this. They may have refractory fevers due to the neurologic changes. They may have poorly controlled seizures as well as agitation and delirium. Commonly, this is an important space for the palliative care team to be involved. In addition, one of the other areas that palliative care practitioners have a significant role in the acute stroke period is with regards to communication. In many cases, the patient or the patient and in particular the family, because the patient may not be alert, are often being bombarded by the primary care team, the stroke team, the neurosurgical team, with lots of complex information and decisions to be made. And the palliative care team can be very valuable in terms of helping the family to process this complex information, breaking it down with them, all in collaboration with the primary hospital team. The palliative care team often needs to get involved as well with transitions of care, and there's always a big question of what should happen to this patient after this immediate stroke if they don't pass away in a hospital setting. Is, there, is the patient appropriate for hospice? Should they be transitioned to a facility or if they should be transitioned to home? So these are often important and really salient questions for the family. They need a lot of help with this. And the other very important role for a palliative care in the acute stroke setting is with family support. As I mentioned before, this is often a shocking event. It can be out of the blue. And there's a very profound role for all the disciplines within the field of palliative, palliative care to support the family with coping with this change, with this uncertainty, and walking through, through the number of concerns that they have regarding medical care, all the way to financial and other logistical concerns and care needs. I want to say a word about goals of care in the acute setting, and we're not going to focus specifically on goals of care today, but since it is such an important topic, I do want to touch on it. I want to emphasize first and foremost that goals of care discussions are frequently an ongoing process, and this in part is due to the fact that often this stroke is an acute event, unexpected, and there has been little opportunity to prepare and to think about these things in advance. So the patient's family may be in shock after this stroke and they may have been provided with information, but they may need to be reiterated, reinforced, and rediscussed on an ongoing basis before a clear decision is made. Another thing that's important to consider is really to think closely about whether the patient has capacity for medical decision-making. And in many cases, the patient won't. However, it's important to consider that cognitive impairment does not necessarily exclude capacity. On the flip side, we always have to think about patients with aphasia, whether this may affect their capacity as well, both in terms of being able to communicate their wishes, but also in terms of being able to understand information that is provided to them. Capacity as well, as we know, can significantly vary depending on the question at hand. And first and foremost, I'll also add that it is really important for the palliative care team to collaborate with the primary team, both in terms of delivery of the news regarding prognosis and any follow-up discussions as well. So those are some of the general needs uh, in the acute setting. But 
palliative care needs do not end there. In fact, they can go on for years. And there are many needs. And I think, in a sense, it's helpful to break them down in terms of layers. Now, when I think about post-stroke needs, I first think about the primary deficits. And these are the deficits that we classically associate with someone who has had a stroke, related specifically to the area of the brain injury. And these are things that are typically discernible either by doing a physical exam or sort of a brief neurocognitive assessment or mental status exam. So these are things like weakness, numbness, aphasia, dysphagia, dysarthria, so difficulty producing speech, visual deficits. Someone with a stroke maybe have a field cut, so they may not be able to see in one particular area of their vision. They may have a neglect syndrome, meaning they have an inability to essentially attend or to recognize the world on one side of their body. And they can also have memory impairment or other cognitive impairments. And as I mentioned, just mentioned, these things are readily apparent either on a physical or a cognitive assessment. However, beneath this, we have a long list of secondary symptoms which are not so readily apparent, apparent, and we need to ask about them and to assess them. Even though they aren't apparent, they really can have a significant impact on a person's quality of life. And these can be either a primary complication of the stroke lesion itself, or it can be a complication of some, of some of the other deficits that I just went through. And these are things like pain, spasticity, fatigue, uh, constipation, depression, sexual dysfunction, anxiety, incontinence, skin breakdown, sleep disorders, and, and the list goes on, but these are some of the most significant ones. And then below that, we have another layer of what I like to think of as tertiary concerns. And these are things, again, that are not readily apparent on assessment. You have to think about them and you have to ask about them. And these are topics which affect not just the patient, but the family and other caregivers as well. So these are concerns such as psychosocial changes, spiritual distress, uncertainty, financial and other logistical concerns, lack of information, lack of social support. And if we look at these secondary and tertiary concerns, we'll recognize that this is really where the field of palliative care lives. And often, particularly in stroke patients, these things are under-recognized and untreated. So as a palliative care practitioner, if you think about these things and you ask about these things and you work towards developing a treatment plan, you are really accomplishing a tremendous amount for your patients and their families. I'm going to focus in terms of symptom management, first of all, on pain. Now, we don't typically think of stroke as a painful condition, but in fact, pain is very common in stroke. It occurs throughout the disease course, and it's reported in anywhere from 42 to 72% of stroke patients, so quite common. And stroke can be associated with others, excuse me, pain can be associated with other symptoms like fatigue, depression, or reduced quality of life. Also, importantly, it can have a major impact on someone's participation in rehabilitation. So if you have someone who is undergoing aggressive rehab and really the goal is to recover function, if they have pain, that is going to impair their ability to do that. So another reason we really need to focus and aggressively manage pain regardless of the goals of care. 
pain after a stroke can come from multiple etiologies. There can be primary post-stroke pains resulting directly from the lesion. There can be pain from secondary complications of stroke. And pain can also occur as comorbidities, uh, medical comorbidities. So for example, a patient may have had a stroke, but they may also have pain from their arthritis or from their diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Even though it's not directly resulting from the stroke, it can certainly affect their well-being and their ability to participate in activities and so needs to be addressed regardless of the source. It's also important in particular to think about the impact that communication deficits can have on the management of pain. And the concern is that patients who have communication deficits, for example, aphasia, where they're unable to produce language, are at risk to be undermanaged for their pain. There was an interesting study that was done, a retrospective review, which compared the PRN usage of pain medication in stroke patients on a rehab service, and they compared stroke patients who had aphasia compared to patients who didn't have aphasia. And what was found is that the stroke patients with aphasia were prescribed the same amount of pain medication as patients without aphasia, However, the stroke patients with aphasia ultimately received significantly less medication on a PRN basis, on a PRN basis than the patients without aphasia. So what can we learn from this? It's very likely that these patients with aphasia were being under-medicated for their pain simply because they weren't able to effectively communicate when they were in pain and when they needed treatment. Given this, um, one might consider perhaps a scheduled use of pain medications in a patient with communication deficits for whom you suspect that there might be a cause for pain to make sure that they are not being undertreated. By far the most common type of pain in the post-stroke setting is known as hemiplegic shoulder pain. And this is a type of pain that can develop in the initial weeks after stroke, but can persist for months or for even years. And this has a number of impacts. It can contribute to longer hospital stays. It can result in reduced participation in rehab. It can result in limitations in limb movement, which can, this immobility can in turn worsen pain, so it can be a vicious cycle, and can also result in an overall reduced quality of life. Hemiplegic shoulder pain comes from many sources, and in fact, in, 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 in an individual patient, there may be multiple causes contributing to it. There is a relationship between the degree of motor impairment and the pain. So for patients who have zero arm motor function who are completely paralyzed, about 83% of these patients do develop this hemiplegic shoulder pain. There are, as I mentioned, multiple causes, musculoskeletal causes. One can have a subluxation, and this can become if someone's muscles are weakened, they can't support their arm, it essentially functions as a dead weight, and so the shoulder can sublux. You can develop an impingement syndrome. One can have peripheral nerve injuries. One can have rotator cuff dysfunction. One can develop a frozen shoulder or had adhesive capsulitis from the immobility, uh, stroke, uh, and the motor impairment can result in spasticity, which can be painful as long as, as well as contractures. Now, there are a number of different interventions that one can use to address this type of shoulder pain, They're both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. First and foremost, it's important really to pay attention to how the patient is 
position. You want to make sure that their arm isn't a dead weight and pulling their shoulder or joint downward. Um, in some cases, it can be helpful for the person to use a shoulder sling, particularly when they're ambulating. If they're sitting in a wheelchair, there are particular armrests that can be used to adequately position the arm. And I'll also mention that in cases like this, there really can be an important role for physical therapy or occupational therapy. And this can be in patients who maybe aren't able to sort of participate in an acute rehab setting, maybe have cognitive impairment, maybe nonverbal, can't follow instructions, but there can still be a value to rehab, to physical therapy and occupational therapy, to work on positioning, passive range of motion, and to train caregivers to care for the patient and make sure that that arm is kept safe um, and is not injured further. Other interventions can include ice, heat, soft tissue massage. There is certainly, of course, a stepwise role for analgesics. Typically, one would start with acetaminophen. There can be a role for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as well. You do have to be careful with them in patients who have had stroke, particularly many patients who have had stroke are on anticoagulants. So you need to think about the risk of bleeding, and you need to think about the effects that NSAIDs, uh, NSAIDs may have on uh, other cardiovascular risk factors. In some cases, a subacromiocortical steroid injection can provide some relief for pain. And there's emerging evidence for other modalities as well, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation. There was a recent randomized trial uh, showing reduction in shoulder pain with transcranial magnetic stimulation compared to a sham treatment. So there really are a growing number of options at this point. Another type of pain that which can be quite distressing in the post-stroke setting and is common to occur in the shoulder and arm area is complex regional pain syndrome. This was previously known as shoulder hand syndrome, and this is essentially a complex regional pain syndrome resulting from the brain injury. And it typically is characterized by a significant pain. This may be a burning pain, it may be a deep pain, and it's commonly associated with other findings as well, namely hyperhidrochesia or allotinia. People who have a complex regional pain syndrome in their shoulder and arm typically have edema to their arm. There are common color changes, so the arm may be reddish, purple, or dusky in appearance. There are temperature changes, so the arm may be colder or warmer than the other arm. There are trophic changes to the skin, uh, to the nails, and to the hair. And we can also see muscle atrophy and contractures in the area. There can also be bone demineralization as well associated with this. In terms of innervations, it generally responds to uh, multiple disciplines used together. Um, first, there is a role for physical therapy, mainly mobilization and strengthening exercises, which can be pursued. There is some evidence that mirror therapy, which was developed for management of phantom pain in uh, amputated limbs, can actually be helpful for, um, for complex regional pain syndrome and after stroke as well. So this is another option for you to consider. NSAIDs can be used in terms of pharmacotherapy. Sometimes a course of oral steroids can be helpful. And then there can also be a role for some of the medications that we commonly associate with neuropathic pain. For example, anti-epileptics like uh, gabapentin or pregabalin. There is a role for tricyclic antidepressants. One would, of course, want to think about the side effect profile when selecting a medication. And in some cases, bisphosphonates can promote some relief as well. Another 
type of pain post-stroke, which is important to recognize, is known as central post-stroke pain. Now, this is more unusual. It occurs in around 1% to 8% of patients, but it's important not to miss. And this is actually a neuropathic pain syndrome, which is secondary to the brain lesion itself. It was previously termed thalamic pain because the thinking used to be that it resulted only from injury to the thalamus in the brain. Now it's understood that it can result from lesions really anywhere along the sensory tracts within the brain. Now this typically has a delayed onset. It may onset weeks after a stroke or even months and then persist after that. It typically develops within an area of sensory deficit. And it commonly presents as a very dysthetic type pain. So people will describe as burning, squeezing, aching, a cold sensation. And it's often associated with allodynia and hyperalgesia as well. Well, how do we management, manage this? Well, First, it's important to recognize that it is often refractory to treatment and may require titration of medications really to maximal doses. So because of this, it's important to manage patient expectation when you're caring for someone who's suspect has this type of post-stroke pain. Um, and it may take some time and a process really to obtain relief. Um, it's also important to evaluate and make sure that you're uh, treating for any other contributing factors as well. Um, central post-stroke pain certainly can exist with other types of nociceptive joint pain, so we want to make sure that we're really maximizing our management by addressing all causes of the pain at the same time. It's also useful to assess and treat for comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, and sleep disturbance, which can frequently co-occur with central post-stroke pain. In terms of pharmacotherapy, there is evidence that amitriptyline, uh, there's evidence from a double-blind randomized controlled trial, can result in relief. Generally, though, one does have to titrate to higher doses. So we're talking about 75 to 100 milligrams per day of amitriptyline. For many patients, this will be limited by side effects like sedation, dizziness, dry mouth, and confusion, so that's important to be aware of as well. There's also evidence from a double-blind trial that lamotrigine, an anti-epileptic, can reduce pain, and generally this is really a process of gradual titration, so one would have to start at a low dose of around 50 milligrams and then gradually titrate up to 200 milligrams or sometimes all the way up to 400 milligrams per day to obtain relief. Uh, frequently, gabapentin and pregabalin um, are also used for this. I would mention, though, that there really is limited evidence from trials to support this. However, this is often extrapolated based on the evidence that we have that these medications are helpful for peripheral nerve and spinal cord lesion pain. So we extrapolate from that to manage central post-stroke pain as well. Another finding and complication after a stroke is spasticity, and this can also be quite debilitating. Now, spasticity can be described as muscle overactivity in response to stretch reflexes. So if you stretch someone's reflexes after a stroke, they will have almost this response of overactivity of that muscle group. In the upper limb, this typically results in flexion and pronation of the arm, and in the lower limb, this results in typically extension and adduction of the leg. Now, spasticity has multiple effects. It can result in quite painful spasms, it can cause clonus, it can cause abnormal posturing, and in severe cases, it can also result in 
contractures, which can interfere with care, such as carrying out even basic hygiene measures. Well, what can we do about spasticity? Well, as in many things, it's a combination of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions. Non-pharmacologic interventions include things like splinting, positioning, and stretch exercises. Again, this is another space for uh, occupational and physical therapy to uh, maintain a significant role in terms of benefiting the patient, even in terms of pain management. Pharmacologically, there are a few different medications that can be tried, baclofen, tizanidine, and dantrolene. While these can reduce the spasticity, it's important to note that they do have a number of side effects. So even though we are focusing on one particular area of the body in terms of relieving the spasticity, they have generalized side effects. So sedation, weakness, confusion, dizziness can all be of concern. If one is pursuing a more focused therapy, one can consider botulinum toxins, where the botulinum is directed directly into the overactive muscles and can provide some temporary relief of the spasticity as well. Another very important symptom to address in the post-stroke period is fatigue. Now, this is very common and occurs in over 50% of stroke survivors. It can be a direct consequence of the brain injury, but can be related to other complications and comorbidities as well. Fatigue is really important to address in particular because it negatively impacts participation in a number of domains, occupational activities, social, and other activities that someone participates in and can be meaningful to them. It's also notably associated with a reduced quality of life. So we really wanna make sure that we're evaluating and catching this. So what do we do when we're evaluating someone for fatigue? First of all, we wanna consider contributing factors. Depression can contribute. Many patients after a stroke develop uh, disordered sleep breathing, so sleep apnea, and this can absolutely contribute to daytime fatigue. Uh, there can be endocrine or metabolic abnormalities, which ought to be ruled out. Um, someone can have anemia, um, which can contribute to fatigue and pain can contribute as well. It's always useful as well to take a good look at the medications that someone is using because many of the medications that we use in a palliative setting or post-stroke certainly can exacerbate fatigue. There are fortunately a number of interventions that can be used to address fatigue. And first, in terms of non-pharmacologic interventions, there is a few. Um, the first would be exercise, and there's some evidence that exercise in the post-stroke period can help to reduce fatigue. So again, participation and physical therapy can be very helpful from a variety of areas. Another area to focus on can be energy conservation techniques. And the principle behind this is essentially reducing uh, the energy that one needs to expend towards specific activities and conserve that energy for other activities that the patient finds uh, more meaningful and important to them. And this can be very effective, particularly if you're in a home care setting, you can actually go out to the person's home and look at their environment and see what they're doing during the day. You can work with that person to think, are there ways that they can reduce and conserve their energy? So for example, if a patient is uh, gets very fatigued trying to cross a room and they have a favorite chair in one area of the room and they get very tired walking across the room to go to the bathroom, one could re-engineer the physical space to put the chair closer to the bathroom so they're not expending their energy on that activity. Other solutions could be um, minimizing the other energy spent toward other activities or adjusting the day so that someone's important activities to them are done during the times of day when they feel more awake 
Enneler. There is also a significant role for assistive technologies to reduce um, the energy that one needs to spend towards specific activities. Or things can be very fatiguing for people in the post-stroke setting if they have a physical disability. And this, again, can be a role for occupational therapy. In terms of pharmacotherapy, there is evidence that from two double-blind trials that modafinil um, at doses of 200 to 400 milligrams per day um, can show improvements in fatigue in the post-stroke period. Interestingly, one of these studies also showed improved quality of life as well. Methylphenidate, another medication that we commonly use for fatigue in a palliative care setting, there's really only anecdotal evidence at this point. And studies which have looked at SSRIs show that they have improved depression but haven't specifically improved fatigue. Another issue often of great distress to patients and other caregivers is incontinence. Now there's a very high prevalence of this in the early post-stroke period and it can persist. It's also important to remember that this is a risk factor for institutionalized care and a risk factor for increasing caregiver burden. It also contributes to skin breakdown, um, and there can be a number of causes from it. It can be a central cause resulting from the stroke injury itself. It can come from other causes such as the impaired communication. So maybe the patient isn't able to effectively communicate when they need to go to the bathroom. It can result from immobility. The patient isn't physically able to get to the bathroom in time. So it can be really helpful to think about potential contributing factors and try to work towards modifying those. Other interventions can be, first of all, very um, close attention to skin, um, so barrier cleans to make sure that the skin is kept dry and we're not worsening skin breakdown. One can also consider, for example, bladder training programs or prompted voiding and bowel programs in this population. Going along with incontinence is constipation. Now, typically in a palliative care setting, we often associate constipation with opiate use. But even in patients who are not opiates, patients who have stroke are at very, very high risk for constipation. And this comes from a number of causes. It can result from inability, uh, decreased oil intake, and from medications as well, not just opiates, but tricyclic antidepressants and other cholinergic, excuse me, anti-cholinergic medications. It is really important to manage and to assess for constipation. It has so much morbidity to it, it associates with patient discomfort. It can result in overflow fecal incontinence and skin breakdown, all of which these, again, in turn, can be risk factors for institutionalization and caregiver burnout. It is really important also to have a very high vigilance uh, to monitor for constipation in patients with communication deficits because they're usually not able to communicate their needs in terms of this. Interventions include increased fluid and fiber intake, trying to maximize a person's mobility as much as is possible, as well as instituting an appropriate and often a stepwise bowel regimen. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the psychological and psychiatric issues that can occur after a stroke. Now, the first of these that I will discuss is depression. Depression is very common after a stroke and occurs in up to one third of stroke survivors and can really contribute to worsened outcomes in terms of participation in rehabilitation, it affects quality of life, and it's also even associated with increased mortality. So it's really important that we are managing and assessing for depression. 
Possible contributing factors can be basic changes in the neurotransmitter uh, system related to the areas of brain injury, and of course, to the psychosocial issues involved, primarily the loss of function that someone experiences. Depression, I'll also mention, is likely under-recognized, particular in deficits of communication and cognition, so it's particularly easy to miss this in these types of patients. Depression really can benefit from an interdisciplinary approach, and so palliative care team can be very effective in this regard. In terms of non-pharmacologic interventions, if patients verbal and able to communicate, um, exploration of spiritual concerns and counseling uh, can be very helpful. In terms of pharmacotherapy, generally SSRIs are thought to be the first line. Um, there can be a role for tricyclic antidepressants as well, but one always has to think about how they might be exacerbating other stroke complications like sedation, constipation, or urinary retention. Now, if you have a patient who has significant pain issues and they benefit from a tricyclic for this and they're depressed, then you might think about starting this as the first-line treatment. But as I mentioned before, generally, SSRIs would be first-line in this population. Something that is not depression, but is frequently mistaken as depression, is what is known as pseudobulbar affect. Now, pseudobulbar affect is a phenomenon in which somebody has uncontrollable outbursts of laughing or crying, and the key thing is that these are really unrelated to the situation or to the underlying mood. This is a primary result of the brain injury. It occurs specifically from degeneration of cortical bulbar tracts in the brain. This is not limited to stroke. It can occur in a number of neurologic conditions, but it absolutely can occur in the post-stroke period. And this can have a number of effects. It can be very embarrassing to patients, and it can lead to social isolation, and is associated with reduced quality of life. And as I mentioned before, can often be mistaken as depression. So the first step is really to recognize it for what it is. The next step is to make sure that you are educating patients and families about what this is. It may be very confusing and very puzzling to the patient themselves or to the family member about why they're having these episodes, which doesn't match their internal state or the external state. In terms of pharmacotherapy, there is evidence that a combination medication, dextromethorphine quinidine, can reduce symptoms of pseudobulbar affect. And then second-line treatments would be either a tricyclic antidepressants or SSRIs. Often going along with depression is anxiety. Now, there are, as we can imagine, multiple sources for anxiety in someone who has had a stroke. This can result from loss of function and the patient's changed role. There can be significant concerns about fear of another stroke and fear of the and anxiety can also be exacerbated by other symptoms, namely pain or dyspnea. Anxiety, when we're focusing on all these other symptoms, can be easy to miss, but it's important to have a low threshold to ask about it and assess for it. Again, this is something that really can benefit from a multidisciplinary approach. For verbal patients, one can consider counseling, breathing techniques, in terms of pharmacotherapy, if someone has where they generalize anxiety or panic attacks, there is a role for antidepressants, mainly SSRIs. For very severe anxiety or anxiety which is occurring at the end of life, there is more of a role for benzodiazepines at this point. 
starting at a low dose and then titrating upwards. And in patients who have an associated delirium, there can be a role for antipsychotics. So it's particularly useful if you're managing anxiety to look at the overall context in which it's occurring. Now, in addition to uh, depression and anxiety, there are a number of psychosocial concerns that can come up in a post-stroke setting. Now, these can be intimately interconnected with depression and anxiety, but it's important to recognize that they can also occur independent or without some of these psychiatric symptoms, and they really should be considered in anybody who has had a stroke. And so make sure too that they're being addressed in the absence of other psychiatric symptoms. And generally they're really, because of this, is a very significant role for palliative care in assisting with the overall process of adaptation and reintegration of someone's identity post-stroke. One of the main concerns after a stroke, people feel like they have lost their identity. They are not the same person physically or mentally or functionally that there were before. And it often involves a lot of work to reestablish this identity. This is frequently an ongoing and a dynamic process. And again, one in which really the whole interdisciplinary palliative care team can have a role. When we think about someone who has had a stroke, there are often a number of concerns that are salient and that persist in the post-stroke period, not just for the patient, but for the family as well. And as I mentioned, it's very useful for the whole palliative care team can have a role in allowing the patient to work through their concerns. There's often so much going on that it's hard to break down what's important, so it can be helpful to sort of structure it into categories. There was an interesting uh, meta-analysis done recently looking at all the concerns of patients and families and other caregivers in the post-stroke period, and it essentially broke it down into five general categories. And I think when you're caring for someone who has had a stroke or their loved ones, it's helpful to break it down into these issues, which are often very salient. Um, and the first, of course, is autonomy. And people have had, who have had a stroke, um, they've often lost this independence. And so there's really an importance in it. One of the focuses often in patients and families is trying to regain um, physical, the physical ability to uh, be independent, as well as the cognitive ability to make their own decisions. And often the loss of this is a source of great distress. Patients and families after a stroke are often facing a profound amount of uncertainty. And this can be fear of what the prognosis is. Will they have another stroke? What will their future look like? And it's often a lack of information that contributes to this. Engagement is also very important. And when I talk about engagement, I'm referring into a person's ability or willingness to participate in meaningful activities to have a sense of purpose. And it is often an important role of palliative care team to help someone reestablish their engagement and to refine a sense of purpose in life after these profound changes that have occurred. Hope is another very significant thing, and hope can either be a characteristic of someone's personality or maybe an active coping strategy, and hope can manifest as optimism or the belief that improvement is impossible. It's important for the palliative care team really multiple disciplines to understand the importance of hope in patient's life and also understand the risk that someone may have for losing hope as they are going through rehab and maybe not making the improvements that they were once hoping to have. 
So helping someone to process these changes, hoping to redefine hope can be important work to be done. And finally, it is the sense of social connection that is the fifth and a very, very important significant domain, which is of concern to both patients and, and caregivers. And social connection can result from meaningful interactions and maintenance of a social network. People who have had a stroke, uh, people who are caring for someone who have had a stroke, are at very high risk to become disconnected socially. And social connection is so important for uh, participating in rehab, for, uh, establishing a quality of life and there's many barriers to this there can be communication deficits there can be fatigue can inhibit social interaction caregiver uh, overburdenment can inhibit social interaction so it's important for anyone caring for this population to recognize the importance of this theme we cannot talk about palliative care after a stroke without giving significant attention to families and caregivers. And when I talk about caregivers, I'm talking to what are sometimes referred to as informal caregivers. So family or friends or other people that are involved uh, in the patient's life and are caring for this patient in kind of a non-professional setting. Um, it is really important to first and foremost recognize the impact that uh, a stroke has on the life of caregivers and family members. Um, and it is, there is really a very significant, and we have to recognize this because there's really a significant role um, for caregivers in the long-time quality of life issues for stroke survivors. Caregivers are really instrumental in improving the quality of life of stroke survivors and helping even to preserve and to maintain any gains that might have been achieved in a rehabilitation setting. Of note, their caregivers are now having more and more of a role in the post-stroke setting because as there is now a trend um, towards earlier hospital discharges and home-based rehab, which can have many benefits, but on the flip side, caregivers are now having to deal with post-stroke patients earlier post-stroke and with more complex medical issues in a home setting. And they really need support to be able to be successful in this. It's also important to remember that while the patient undergoes a significant change, the caregiver to herself is often experiencing a very significant change in their identity as well. They are now a caregiver, which they were not before. And they themselves may experience a significant loss of independence and ability to pursue things that they were important to them before this stroke happened. So really, this is key to, to recognize this. Caregivers face a number of challenges, and we have to be very aware and sensitive to this so that we can ask about them and so that we can work with them in developing an effective Caregivers are often faced with a lack of information. Often in the immediate setting, they are bombarded with a lot of information, but then as the patient is discharged from the hospital, they tend to get less and less helpful information, but they still need this information, so we need to make sure that they're getting it. As I mentioned before, caregivers really can have a significant loss of their own identity after this uh, stroke, which can affect their own well-being. They are faced as well with dealing with all of the patient's deficits. And often the patient may have, in addition to physical deficits, they may have communication deficits. They may have uh, communication changes and communication barriers. They may have incontinence. Many of these things which the caregiver has never faced before, and it really changes the relationship with the patient and the ability to care for that person. 
they are often thrust into this new role and they may be thrust into this role far before they are ready for it. Caregivers are often challenged with a lack of ability and a lack of time to provide their own self-care because they are so busy taking care of their loved one, they forget to take care of themselves or they feel too guilty to take care of themselves. And often they are suddenly faced with a number of concerns which they never considered before. Financial concerns, logistical concerns. How am I going to take care of my loved one? I don't know how to do this. I am not set up at home to do this. So all of these are very, very salient issues. Now, the caregivers have a couple needs which are really key. And it's really up to the, the interdisciplinary palliative team to make sure that you are focusing and providing these things. Now, the first thing that caregivers very much need is information. And information can come in many forms. Um, and it's really important to make sure that we, as, as, as clinicians, are proactively assessing the caregiver's needs. Do you have enough information? What are you wondering about that you haven't been told before? How can I help you? What are your current concerns? Asking those questions is often really half the battle. Common concerns our caregiver are symptom management, specifically how to address symptoms in real time. What can they expect in the future? So sometimes it's prognostic information, sometimes it's how will things change over time. Caregivers really need practical tips. How do I get a patient out of bed? How do I clean them up? When my loved one is incontinent, how do, I, how do I help someone to eat when they're having trouble swallowing? And they often need uh, available resources, and they sometimes don't even know how to seek out the information that they need. So importantly, it's really, number one, important to allow caregivers sufficient time um, to ask the questions that they need to ask. And they may be hesitant to ask, so to proactively ask them, if they have any questions and what their concerns are. And even if you don't have the answers yourself, you may be able to initiate the process of the caregiver getting the information that they really need. Importantly, as I mentioned before, it is very common for caregivers in the immediate post-stroke setting to get a lot of information, which they don't necessarily process, but they will continue to have concerns and maybe more and more questions um, as the disease, throughout the disease courses. So this really, the caregiver's need for information is really an ongoing issue and should be assessed really at every interaction. Caregivers also have very, very high risk for social isolation. This comes from many causes. A change in a patient's life, a change in their own life role, um, a lack of time. They may be singularly focused on the patient to the expense of taking care of themselves. But social support is really vital to avoid burnout and to allow the caregiver to remain engaged. And typically, um, caregivers may actually experience, as time goes on, an increasing need for their own space over time. In the immediate post-stroke period, they may be very, very focused and not really be thinking about themselves, but as things go on, they start to realize that they do need their own space. But in many cases, they feel guilty about this um, and they're not willing to acknowledge it. Um, so given this, it's really helpful to proactively assess caregivers to make sure that they have a support system. Where are you getting your own support from? You can ask them. And to assess for risks of uh, social isolation. And caregivers, as I mentioned before, can, can be hesitant to share these concerns. They may be embarrassed. They may feel guilty about it. But when you're talking to a caregiver, you can really validate 
their concerns that this is important not just for them, but for the patient as well, because if they're getting adequate social support, if they are taking care of themselves, this will in turn allow them to be a better caregiver. In terms of social support, there are many forms. There is, of course, a role for professional social support, and this can really be any member of the interdisciplinary palliative care team, and often this is the ongoing relationship to assess their needs and work towards finding concrete solutions to them. Of course, there is a role for friends and family. Unfortunately, these relationships are often really neglected in the post-stroke period, so it's important, again, that to caregivers, you validate to them that they have that it is important and good for both them and for their loved one as well, that they're pursuing and continuing these relationships. People also can neglect prior community supports, like religious or other organized communities. It's very helpful if people have been engaged in these to continue to remain engaged with these connections. And some people find it very helpful to develop uh, support from a stroke community as well. And this can be either in the form of online or in-person support groups. And finally, there is certainly a role for stroke-focused organizations to provide support. For example, the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association has a great website in which they have a lot of resources for caregivers, both in terms of um, specific and very concrete information that caregivers may be wondering about, but they also have uh, a search engine where one can look for a stroke support group near them. And um, so it really can be very helpful. They also have a, a, um, a hotline in which uh, caregivers or people who have had strokes can call this line and speak to a stroke professional who can provide them really specific information at any time that they need. I wanna spend just a moment um, as we end this talking about hospice eligibility for stroke because certainly this is another very important uh, support for both patients and families for those who are eligible. Now, hospice eligibility for stroke can be under-recognized, so I just want to go through the criteria. So generally, when we're talking about someone who's hospice eligible for stroke, we're talking about a pretty low palliative performance score, usually 40 or less, really dependent on radial, spending a lot of time in bed. The other key thing is really the nutritional status. So we're talking about people who are unable to maintain nutrition or caloric intake, and this would be associated with either significant weight loss, a low albumin level, um, pulmonary aspiration, and dysphagia, um, preventing significant oral intake to sustain life without receiving artificial nutrition or hydration. So thank you for listening. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you just a moment um, to think about and to ask some questions and then I'll address some of these questions uh, before we wrap up. Okay, so we have a question actually just on the topic that I talked about. Can a patient be on hospice and have a feeding tube? So that's a really good question. So the, the criteria that I just went through, as I, as I just mentioned, that really we're talking about uh, someone with a poor nutritional status who's not able to support their nutritional status and, and, and who doesn't have a feeding tube. That being said, there's no rule on hospice that says that you can't have a patient, that you can't have a feeding tube and be on hospice for a stroke. But what we're really looking at is the prognosis. So if you had had someone who had a stroke and who had severe dysphagia and just had a feeding tube placed and is otherwise pretty stable clinically and isn't showing significant signs of decline, then we would say that patient really is not eligible for hospice. However, if you had a patient 
um, who had just had a stroke and has aphasia and had a feeding tube place. But in addition to that, even though they have their feeding tube, they, let's say they have a stage four ulcer or um, they're having lots of recurrent aspiration pneumonias or discharged from the hospital and they're going back and forth to the hospital with episodes of sepsis or are losing weight or have a low albumin level or showing some of those other signs of uh, decline, then that patient, due to the other signs of decline, would, we would consider um, hospice eligible. So we're really looking at really the overall uh, prognostic picture and signs of decline um, in that type of situation. So the next question um, that I have are, what are some recommendations for uh, managing dysphagia? Um, so dysphagia, we didn't talk too much about this, but I'm glad someone brought it up. Um, dysphagia is really a, a, a significant issue um, in the post-stroke period, um, whether or not a, a a patient has the placement of a feeding tube. And often, as I mentioned before, this is really one of, of the key things that um, needs to be addressed if someone has dysphagia in the post-stroke period. A couple things to keep in mind. Number one, dysphagia is often very, very common after someone um, has had a stroke, um, but it can actually um, improve over time. So someone may be profoundly dysphagic, but then they may gradually improve over time, um, so it frequently um, involves ongoing investment. Um, there is also, in terms of, sort of the interdisciplinary perspective, um, a very important uh, role for, um, for um, speech and swallow evaluation, both initially, but then this is something um, that can be pursued uh, even in the weeks or months after a stroke because someone's needs may change. And in particular, if someone doesn't have a feeding tube place, it doesn't mean that we would sort of say, we're not going to do anything, um, but they can still benefit um, from speech and swallow evaluation and therapy. And some of the things that can be done are strengthening uh, kind of those oral pharyngeal muscles, strengthening the tongue muscles um, to allow the person to get stronger and to swallow more safely. Um, there are a number of other strategies that can be used in terms of um, safe swallowing. Um, so a head tuck technique, um, different breathing techniques, um, different positioning techniques can all be very helpful um, in allowing a patient to swallow more safely. Um, both for uh, nutrition, which is often a concern, but also just for overall quality of life. As we know, um, sometimes um, swallowing, it's a, the act of eating is very important. And then sometimes nutrition can play a role in terms of uh, changing the consistency of food, um, dietary modifications to allow a person um, to swallow as I mentioned, more safely and to have uh, what we would describe as, as pleasure beings. Um, another question, um, how can you assess depression in a nonverbal patient? Um, another good question. Um, it can be very hard, and that's one of the reasons that it, it can be missed. Um, but one of the, the things that we really can look at is, is behavioral changes. So is the person not interactive? Are they withdrawn? Um, are they tearful? Sometimes resistance to care itself um, can be a sign of depression. So if you're trying to change someone or get them dressed and they're biting you off, sometimes this is misinterpreted as agitation, 
but in some patients it really can be um, a sign of, of depression itself. And then um, very quickly we have a question about can you give um, some prognostic guidelines. Um, so a big question for a, a very short amount of time. Um, I'll say one of the things that can contribute is um, medical comorbidities. Um, so someone who has uh, diabetes, um, someone who has renal failure in particular, those are two things which really sort of would portend um, a worse a prognosis post-drug, uh, uncontrolled hyperglycemia is another thing. Um, often the, the pre-morbid status uh, post-stroke as well um, really has sort of can uh, predict how well someone is, is going to do after a stroke because um, they tend to have a lower baseline and then also the, the size of the stroke as well and the location um, uh, can also be as larger strokes in, in many cases can be associated with an overall worse than prognosis. So that is all the time that we have for questions. Thank you very much. Um, at this point, I am going to um, announce our next webinar, which will be um, Disease-Related Changes in Pharmacokinetics and Pharmacodynamics. And this will be presented by Estesam Ahmed, who is the Director of Pharmacy Internship at the MJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. And this will happen on Thursday, October 19, 2017 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I hope you'll join us for that. Um, I'd like to remind you to complete your webinars to help us planning for our future sessions. Thank you very much.